So I know I've told you all I'm, I'm sort of a last-minute uh, titling person when it comes to sermons. Uh, you know, this one has got a bit more of a, you know, it's, it's not witty, it's actually pretty direct and uh, mundane. And, and I'm going to forewarn you, and this could be the medications of the last few days speaking, or, or I don't know, but every once in a while there's a sermon that I start working on, and it just doesn't get all the way done. It's 80% of the way there, it's 85% of the way. Now, I still think it's worthwhile. In fact, I hope that every once in a while when this happens, you say, well, it's good that our pastor doesn't know everything. It's good that uh, he hasn't quite gotten the whole Jesus thing figured out because otherwise, we gotta, it's be really boring up here most Sundays. Um, but what I hope is that there's an ellipsis at the end of this sermon that it leads to further and greater discussion. And the thing that I could not escape this week as I reflected on this text is as Christianity continues to be reformed, and indeed, as, as Presbyterians and as Reformed Christians, we believe reformed and ever reforming, I'm struck by the role of individualism in our faith. Now, as I see it, there's two sides to a very similar coin. There's the side that says, well, you know what, y'all? Jesus came to save just me. I mean, y'all know this story. It's, it's I, at 13, had a mountaintop experience and came to faith. And it is as though there is some spirit team six whose job it is up in heaven to make sure that all the world lines up in such a way that at 13 years old, you personally made a significant decision of faith, and then that's it. Everybody applauds, job well done, everybody, and they celebrate, and you call it a day. Now, that spirit team six is awful busy because I know there are billions of people who have chosen to follow Jesus. So, you know, they have a lot of work to do day in and day out. And this has struck me as a uniquely American brand of Christianity. You know, it's a rugged individualism, right? We pick ourselves up from the spiritual bootstraps. We made that choice and the heavens responded in kind, and we have been saved, alleluia, and amen. And this also has had its a heyday, this rugged, individualized sort of Christianity that hinges on your personal decision. It's really come about in the last 100 and 150 years, around the same time as the Industrial Revolution, because as the Industrial Revolution turned us more into pieces, into cogs of machines, so we have been atomized and brought down to smaller parts. Now we're not the community that takes care of each other on the farm, in the rural areas, we're in the cities, and we've got our atomic families and the individual. More of an emphasis on the smaller and smaller denominations of community. And of course, this has been reflected. You know, Robert Putnam wrote that great book, Bowling Alone. You know, this idea of individualism is not new, that institutions that we used to celebrate all the time, you know, people don't go to Rotary as much as they used to, people don't join bowling leagues as much as they used to, people don't come to church as much as they used to. Because it all hinged on that personal decision. But on the other side of that coin, I think there's the spiritual but not religious crowd. Now, hear me when I say both of these, I'm not arguing that we should judge or have any shame in either of these. Both of these are valuable directions. Maybe you resonate with one or the other. Maybe part of your spiritual story 
is that decision that you made. Or maybe you see yourself more as spiritual but not religious. Now, there's a difference in spiritual and not religious between the, I don't want to be associated with a specific kind of religion, but you still show up in the pews and you still are part of a Christian community. I'm not thinking about those folks. What I'm thinking about instead is, you know, I don't worship anywhere and I'm kind of proud of that because it implies that this person is a free thinker and they're not spoon-fed dogma. They don't really look down on other people who are different, but they might look at those folks who are on the other side of that coin, the Jesus saved me with a little bit of disdain because, boy, that really feels like the opposite of what I'm doing. And Dr. Linda Mercandante, who's a PCUSA professor at the Methodological Theological School in Ohio, which was in Delaware, Ohio, skip, hop, and a jump for where I used to be, argued that there's distinct categories even in this spiritual but not religious group. There are some, understandably, that are dissenters. You know, there's a lot of conversation now about Christian deconstructionism. Folks who used to be really big in evangelical circles have decided that they're just done with it. Joshua Harris, I think, being one of them, if any of you are about my age, will remember the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and all of us, it was like mandatory reading for youth groups. It actually was part of my courtship and marriage class. In undergrad, yes, in 2001, I had to take a courtship and marriage class. And I always tell everybody I got an 88, so I tell Lindsay all the time, at best, I'm going to be a B-plus husband. Um, so you got to cut me a break 10 to 12% of the time. But some are dissenters. You know, they, Joshua Harris had written this whole thing, had this huge, massive career, and then realizes that this whole thing, this whole way of looking at Jesus wasn't for him, and he's left he now considers himself an atheist. So there are dissenters who actively work against religion, but there's also seekers. I mean, certainly at one point in every church, there is a conversation that says, well, friends, we need to have a seeker-sensitive church service. We need to have a seeker-sensitive class. And it's not a bad thing. There are folks who have sort of given up most of the trappings of religion, but maybe are still curious, still trying to figure out what they can take with them in their journey. Or, and I really like this term that Mercadante talks about, is spiritual immigrants. Maybe, and, and this probably explains my own story, where I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist way of looking at things in the Independent Church of Christ, and then I moved to the Presbyterian Church USA. I became a spiritual immigrant. I needed to learn what did it mean to enculturate myself into being reformed. But I still think this is defined by the same atomistic individualization that the Spirit Team 6 folks are defined by, except perhaps that spiritual but not religious is the Jesus came to save me of the modern technological era. Instead of being built on institutions and structure and decision points, it's built on narrative, it's built on story, it's built on a journey. Now, this all matters today because I'm not sure how either viewpoint truly attends to the gospel today. This passage begins Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and I'm kind of bummed that we're only going to do the Sermon on the Plain this week and next week in the lectionary. We always hear about the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus also does one on a level playing field with both the disciples and all of those who are gathered and this emphasis on Luke being very clear that this is on a level plane, 
ought to invite us to consider a world redone by God. What does the kingdom of God look like? What does God's holy commonwealth, when we all shared it together, what does that, what can we envision? What is being revealed to us still in the season of Epiphany? Remember, this is Epiphany Tide, where there's revelation and Jesus is showing us new things, showing us exciting things. And if you notice, we almost pass it by because we get to blessings and woes, and our minds often love that sort of, you know, the, the structural grammar that's there, you know, blessings and woes and rich and poor. We almost skip the first part, which is how this all gets started. It leads off with the community needing healing. And it's the community all around where Jesus is. People are traveling from long distances. And that's fascinating to me, right? That all of the teaching that Jesus is about to do comes out of communal need and communal restoration. And not just the idea of it, not some highfalutin idea where a bunch of people get together, you know, like a city council dais, and they say, you know what we need, dear friends? We need community healing and community restoration. It's not just grand ideas. Literally, healing is happening with touch. The most basic and simple of human interactions. Physical enacting of communal presence. And people gathered, and they just simply had to touch Jesus, and they were healed. This is how all of this gets started. Then Jesus starts talking to the disciples and does these four blessings and four woes, and they're aligned with each other, you know? Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed to the hungry, woe to the full. Blessed to the, those who are weeping and Woe to those who are laughing, blessing to those who are rejected, and woe to those who are accepted. And this is where I'm stuck, y'all. If, if, if that the experience of faith boils down to individualistic, atomistic being, like if all that we're here for is for those two reasons, that we're here because Jesus saved us and we made a decision and all we do now is we live our lives as individuals trying to make the best sense of the world, or we're spiritual but not religious and so we're trying to make sense of the world as best we can but we don't want to deal with the trappings of the institution of religion, then are the blessings and woes listed here just simply descriptions of what is? In other words, friends, Jesus is saying, if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weeping, if you're rejected, sorry, it'll get better. Or, Jesus is saying, if you're rich, if you're full, if you're laughing, if you're accepted, sorry, it's going to get worse. Now, here's the truth. That's the easy out for the sermon in my understanding of it, right? Is what I could do now is, is the, the final move could be, hey, if you're, if you're one of these things, rich, full, laughing, or accepted, hey, be mindful of those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and rejected. Great job. All of you would feel like, listen, I think I got something out of it, but I'm going to cut Adam a break because of his hospitalization this week. And, you know, seven out of ten, I'm getting out early to, to get ready for the Super Bowl. But I don't think if we take the other 
passages seriously, we can get out of it that easily. Jeremiah, which is admittedly a dour passage in the book of Jeremiah, says that if we only trust in ourselves and only what we offer, we will fail ourselves. And the translation here says that our hearts are devious and perverse. A better translation may be that our hearts are incurably deceptive. Incurably deceptive. Hyper-individualism, dear friends, on either side of the coin will ultimately deceive us because our hearts are incurably deceptive. Listen, that doesn't mean that they're wrong or they're sinful or they're broken, but you know, it is really hard for me when I hear these texts to want to live too much into the woes I would rather live into the blessings. Yeah, I'm, I'm poor in some way, or I've been rejected in the past. My heart wants me to go that direction. Incurably deceiving that it is. So what's the alternative here, right? And I go back to why does Jesus start all of this in the first place? Why does Jesus feel some obligation to all of a sudden get down and start preaching to folks, right? What is that then for when he says he then looks up and he begins to say, it is the community of need in his midst. The Greek here is iatopantas, he, meaning Jesus, healed all of them. Friends, any path of spirituality that does not lead to the healing touch within community is deceptive from our own hearts. The telos, the reason de etra, the ultimate goal, the reason why we should do any of this has to be that. Eomai pantas. For all to be healed. Otherwise, it's just self-deception. I think if we approach life with this idea of this right telos, this right end goal of Iomai Pantas, of healing everybody, then the blessings in the future come nearer, right? Because maybe the poor aren't so poor. Maybe those who are dejected feel a little bit more accepted. And so maybe that God's kingdom comes a little bit closer a little sooner. But also, I think on the other side, the woes might be a little bit more diminished. Because if in my richness I recognize some of my own poverty, maybe those woes diminish a little bit of what I see. Maybe instead of seeing myself as fully accepted and not paying attention to anybody who's rejected, I try to expand my circle wider and bring those who have always been rejected right to the center, the most valuable part of the table, and say, friend, eat of the choicest food and drink of the choicest drink. You are the honored guest. Well, maybe if I've pushed myself out of the center a little bit, maybe those upcoming woes might not feel as bad because I know a little bit more of what it's like to be rejected. Otherwise, I fear it is nothing but self-absorption 
which rarely anyone but the rich and the full and the laughing and the accepted have the luxury of. So yes, know that someday it'll get better, dear ones, and live it up while you can. In the end, and again, I'm not quite all the way there yet on this one, but I'm not sure that the Christian life lived to its fullest can escape this telos. I think in the end, this beginning of the Sermon on the Plain invites us to consider, is this the life we really want? One that self-deceives us from our own hearts into being deluded that we are full of nothing but blessings. And I don't think we can achieve anything else because in the end, Jesus himself reveals and achieves this end. As we continue to walk through the Gospels, we'll see over and over again Jesus being rejected. We find Jesus bringing those who are most rejected into the center. And eventually, during Holy Week, we will witness again how Jesus makes himself completely and totally rejected only to turn death itself on its head to resurrection. This is what Jesus' end is for. So the question that should remain with us is what we really want. Is it a life that where our spiritual hearts perpetually deceive us to our own individual ends, or is it to witness Christ healing everyone? Thanks be to God.